1: You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game.
0: This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power?
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. And today... We actually have guests with us that I'm excited to talk about because they do something that I have zero experience doing okay. in my entire career and that is Public Entity Insurance and Risk Management. We have Carson and Bob from Seville Public Entity as our guests today, and we're gonna get deep into how they can help you because I know we have a ton of listeners who actually do write this business, and I'm really looking forward to sharing these guys' story with you. Probably heard it before, but hopefully if we do our job, you guys are gonna learn something new. So first and foremost, Carson and Bob, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Yeah, Dave, thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you guys just sort of give the, the quick overview of who you are and, and how you got to where we are right now. And then we're just going to see where conversation takes us and ask you questions as, as you give us answers.
3: Well, uh, I'll I'll lead off. I appreciate you having us here and, and uh, we're looking forward to the next hour. I started Seville Public Entity back in the mid 80s and uh, at that time there really were no self-insurance pools. Every state has a self-insured comp or self-insured liability pool for the cities, counties, and schools. But at that time, we were in a hard market, similar to the one we're in now. And there was a need for the pools and they, they all began in around 1986 and developed from there. So at that time, we were writing some of the first public entity policies out there And uh, you probably wrote one of the first uh, public official liability policies with AIG back in the mid 80s. But we developed this idea that we had. And overnight, within 18 months, we had written $12 million of premium, which was quite a bit of premium back in the 80s. But there was no, as you can imagine, there was no Internet. There was no quick means of communicating, and there was no quick means of underwriting. So we took uh, these Excel worksheets and and built Excel programs that would rate the auto and that would give us um, a quick way to rate 1,200 vehicles in about an hour. And by doing that, our program evolved. And uh, through the years, we were in Georgia and uh, the Carolinas and uh, Tennessee and Alabama, mainly the Southeast. And we built that up to about $30 million of premium. And uh, I sold in 2003 to one of the big brokers and worked for them for a little while. And then about six years later, we left and Carson graduated. You graduated in 2010.
2: Yeah. So I I went to Auburn and Called Bob about the time of graduating right after the recession 08 and said, Hey, you want to get this thing started again? And so I went AIG boot camp and Bob started this in the basement. And I came and joined him about two years later. And we just cold calling every day, sharing a desk about like this. And it was tough back then, man. I mean, we had no business, no employees. And we just started calling. We started in Alabama and worked our way around the country. And that was about 15 years ago almost. Yeah. And uh, now we got. 10 or 15 employees. We're in 35 states and about 350 cities and counties, we insure. Looks like you got enough time to
1: rack out a few sets of preacher curls in the off time. Yeah, too. man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're
1: going guns today, man. I'm jealous.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wore my long sleeve shirt for that.
1: <laughs> <Good move. laughs> I would have to it. I know. <laughs> I, I mean, that that's crazy to think, though, to, to scale to 12. I mean, just 12 million as quick as you did knowing. I mean, I have, I wasn't in the insurance industry in the 80s. I was still in junior high and high school and even elementary school for a portion of it. But I grew up understanding what limited technology looks like compared to what we have now. You know, my I remember even getting my first cell phone. I had to worry about whether or not my the cord for it was gonna get tangled in the the gear shifter in my truck, you know, driving down trying to have a conversation in it. So I mean that's really, really impressive. But you know, it also speaks volumes about the fact that. Technology just makes it a little bit easier. If you have a good product that solves a problem people are facing, they're gonna find out about it. You know, right. word travels really, really quickly. There was a time where I was down, not publicly related, but or public entity related, but uh, I'd found a program for feed mills and specifically feed manufacturers, and it was a, a group out of uh, somewhere in, in the Midwest. think Iowa maybe, and nobody in Florida had seen or heard of it or whatever else. And I was doing research on prospects and found this little program. And I went down to Okeechobee and and was going for one feed mill. And it just so happened that the two guys that ran this company were going to be in Tampa. So we went out to dinner the night before, and then we jumped in the car and we drove down to Okeechobee and we're sitting there meeting with the first feed manufacturer. And I can hear the receptionist out in the other room saying, yeah, yeah, they're here. All right. Well, they're in there with them now. I'll let them know. Uh-huh. Thanks. And the lady comes in and says, Hey, when you're done, can you go down to, you know, Gator feed, which is next kind of next door, although next door is not next door in Okeechobee, but you know, and so we literally went right down the street, feed mill to feed mill. The next one would call while we were meeting. And we ended up writing like six or seven feed mills in a single afternoon because we showed up with something that they didn't have. And I mean, I got to believe that some of the dynamic that you faced, you know, people were probably coming out of the woodwork, reaching out to you by the time it's over and done with.
3: That's, That's true. You know, I would get in the car back then. We all have trucks now. But I would get in the car and, and uh, leave Atlanta and work my way down to South Georgia and have eight calls by the time I got to Valdosta and then turn around and have eight more calls on the way back the next day. And uh, every one of them was a, was a good prospect by the time we finished. And, you know, we would uh, meet with the agents. And it was interesting back in the day, if you will, since we didn't have any internet, we didn't even have fax machines. What was the bill for the carrier
2: pigeons?
3: Say it again?
4: So, What was the bill for the carrier pigeons?
2: <laughs> well, it was tough. My know? my favorite story, though, of the faxing is, you know, we've run into a lot of bid situations, and it's, you know, whoever's first in with the loss runs. And so Bob tells this story of, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, right before fax machines came out, people would run to the city hall. Bid gets released, Lost runs are out everybody's in their truck going 90 miles an hour to submit it to the carriers. Well, yeah. people started getting helicopters and flying into city hall and taking those loss runs out. Oh, yeah. And Bob got crafty and set up a fax machine in his truck and beat the helicopters. Yeah. And that, that was just blew people's mind back then until we got this thing called email.
4: That's crazy, man. So
3: we have a lot of stories like that. Yeah. And, and uh, we, you know, when we grew this thing and then we sold, which is another story in and of itself. After I sold up and I got back in it again, my goal was that I had a lot of knowledge. We had Carson to sort of run the operations. And these days I spend most of my time consulting with agents, helping agents. Half the agents I work with, we don't write their coverage and we don't write it for the city, but they just call in, we talk to them, we give them direction and say, you need to leave it with your own carrier or maybe you should consider two of the three alternatives, but we can usually fill them in on what their local pools are doing or what their, uh, their carrier options are. And, and my goal right now, uh, you know, Carson came in and uh, he's, he's done things that I didn't know existed and expanded the company and, and is able to take it to the next level. But I, I spent a lot of my time, uh It's consulting with insureds and with with cities, counties, with agents, with brokers. Doesn't matter the size.
1: So here's my question. You didn't do it once. You did it twice. What drew you to public entity to begin with, number one? And what made you decide that's the route you wanted to go when you jumped back in six years later?
3: Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I remember Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an accounting guy by... That's my my degrees in accounting. And I was going down that road and I I got with a just an independent agency. And one of the first things they told me was, don't ever get in that public entity stuff because <laughs> it's all bid business and you'll never be successful. So, you know, one as I've read books over the years, what people tell you will not work is usually where you want to go. And so a friend of mine I'd I'd seen helped me get in it in the the mid eighties. And, uh, when I got out of college, I was working for a bank and I started at $10,000 and that was one of the good positions. So <laughs> I worked my way up to $21,000 after five years and, and thought, well, I think I can do better than that. And, uh, got into the insurance. And when uh, he came along and said, well, I, I'll pay you $30,000 if you'll come work for me. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. So <laughs> In uh, in the public sector, I arrived. The thing has grown and it's just been a joy to work in the public sector. You know, I'm helping people all the time. And that's my goal is, you know, money's a great byproduct of it. But if we can help somebody and, and really help a city, because uh, I've got a lot of risk management degrees and stuff that you probably shouldn't put on your card. So I'm able to walk into a city and help them write a safety program or do a risk management program or identify the problems there that they have. And Carson, we went into a city the other day that they just had terrible problems and lots of claims. And we laid out a uh, reviewed
2: their policies, procedures, and laid out a program and already have them on the road to recovery. And and that was with the local agent that was there. And so we, we mm-hmm. probably get a call every day from an agent somewhere in the country. Hey, I've got these cities I want to go after. And what mm-hmm. what do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? And we can, we can tell them the X date, the requirements to leave the current pool. They're in um, th- there's all kinds of different tricks we have to save these agents from driving, going in front of somebody at city hall, just to waste their time. Hmm. So, yeah,
1: you know, and let's call it what it is. I don't know the the media is the greatest helper for <laughs> public entity risk management in most cases, right? Like, we're down here right now. We're at the either one year or two year anniversary from a young man that was booted from the Florida state fair by the Hillsborough County Sheriff's department and not taken to a safe environment to be dropped off. And they ended up dropping him off and he tried to cross interstate four and was hit and killed. And the family was awarded a $15 million verdict against the Hillsborough County Sheriff's office. You know, to me, number one, that's a very tragic situation that policies and procedures likely solves as long as the officer is going to follow them. But where I was going with that is that's an advertisement for other people, you know, oh, well, you know, the sheriff's office in Hillsborough County is operating a little sloppy, maybe an opportunity for us to do a quick cash grab if we, you know, get involved with them and allege certain indiscretions or whatever else. I don't know, man. I just... You see so much about law enforcement. You see so much about um, just things in general with cities. We went through issues with the school system here where they were going to discontinue busing to our home. And my middle son was going to have to walk like a little over two miles to get to school each way not an issue. Okay.
4: Like barefoot in the snow uphill. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not going (laughs) to, I'm not going to say that, that it's like right around the corner, but if he needed to walk two miles that the walking two miles, wasn't an issue. The issue was it wasn't a safe two mile walk. And I'm obviously in an industry where I think about things a little bit differently, maybe than the average parent. So I go out and I start getting video footage of the walk to school. And then I sit and I set up my cell phone and do the traffic count while he would be walking to school, going right past the mouth of our street. There's no sidewalks at one of the busiest times of the day. And if he made it that far, this is almost like playing a video game. If he made it to the end of that level, he was going to go right. And he was going to go have, he was going to have to pass in front of Three registered sex offenders' homes in the next mi- one and three quarters miles mm-hmm. to get to school, and I went to the school board, and I'm like, you, "This is nuts, man! Like, you can't, you can't put what kids was, in this the position." Reason
4: behind it, like, they're just, they're just
1: trying to cut I mean, costs. And yeah, I said, yeah. you know, I said, I understand that I'm from a from a business background, and I, I honestly do truly respect and appreciate people who are public servants because I know you're going to get grief all the time. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm looking at this thing thinking you're making decisions that are putting my son in direct danger based on that decision. And their answer was, well, you have the decision that you can drive him to and from school. And that's when I said, well, I also come from the business world and I can't speak for everybody like me, but I think that there's enough people like me that live in our area that Okay, why don't we just charge for the bus, man? Like monetize it. Then we don't have to worry about budget cuts and you'll be printing cash. I'd pay, you know, whatever I needed to pay because quite frankly, I don't it's it's cheaper for me to do that than have to be than not be able to schedule early morning appointments because I have to make sure that my son gets to school. I don't know. I just think it would be really really tough to be somebody who's a mayor or a city administrator or whatever. And I can't even begin to imagine the claim scenarios and stuff you guys see.
2: Well, you mentioned the budget, you know, that's what all of these cities, counties, and schools live off of. They select that budget at the beginning of the year. And then from there, that's how they spend their money throughout the year. And so we, Always, I mean, that's the first thing we discuss with that city is, hey, what do you have in the budget for this? Because mm-hmm. we need to alert you now if something's coming, like a big rate increase. We had a new city hall, flipped a fire truck, you name it. They got to incorporate that in the budget early or else yeah. you're
0: hmm. we're, feel about we're it. right
3: in that process right now, because most most uh, cities and counties and schools operate on a uh, July 1st, 630 fiscal year. And so right now they're establishing their budget. So it's a challenge because you have to go back to the carriers and try to determine what their percentage increase will be, what their exposures increase will be and put it in a budget, which is near and dear to my heart as an accounting guy. Uh, but the carriers and underwriters don't want to commit six months ahead of time to what their renewal will be. So it's mm-hmm. sort of a chicken or the egg scenario and uh And we get caught in the middle sometimes with our with our agent or retail broker to to figure out what should go in that budget. But if you can get it in the budget, unlike with a with a private sector account, uh, if you can get it in the budget, then when you bring it in, their first question is, "Do we have this in the budget?" If it is, then you're good to go.
4: Definitely a lot more complicated scenario on the insurance side. This is making me think about when I was selling office supplies. I uh, one of my territories was downtown Lakeland. And I would <clears throat> call on city hall. Cause for whatever reason, like a lot of places like that, they would have something set up where they had to go through staples or office Depot or whoever, but for whatever reason, Lakeland could kind of do with whatever they wanted. But I quickly came to realize that they, they could only buy in like certain cycles. And it was like you said, once the budget was approved, so I would have to, I would make sure that I would mark it down on my little, you know, leads list or whatever you want to call it, that I needed to be there on whatever, you know, whatever date that was after they got things approved. Cause that's when they were buying everything. It'd be a massive order. But, um, you know, it's interesting just, you know, picking up on that, that, that totally just, there's something I completely forgot about until right now. <laughs> yeah, it's- yeah. So go ahead.
1: So here's my question, right? I think that this to me, and you can, you're welcome to tell me I'm wrong. I've got, I've got thick skin, Public entity looks like a really dangerous place for agents. And the reason why I say that is I think there's probably a temptation for a lot of dabblers, right? Everybody's going to have a a relationship at some place inside of their city, their town, their county, whatever it is. But they've never written this. They don't understand it, but they want it. They want it. They think, hey, you know what? You know, my buddy just got elected mayor. I'm in now. I have the ability to come in and do this where do I start, right? So to me, that's really, really dangerous. I think this is probably someplace where you, not probably, I think you need to be a specialist in it. You know, I think that you need to align yourself with people who are even further specialists like your firm. But I'm interested, you know, of the people that you deal with, how many of them are actual specialists in public entity versus those one-offs? That's the first part of the question. The second part is and you may answer it in the first part. do you only work with agents who have a specialty and can show you this is something they they're building a business around and you can grow together? And then the third part of the question is what would you you know, and I'm sure it's all over the board, but I think, too, that people probably really don't have an understanding of the scope of size from small to big that public entity could be. And if there's a way to maybe just sort of describe what the average size of those are, because I want agents that are listening to this that are thinking, you know what? This might not be a bad idea for me to get involved in. I want you to tell them what's going to be expected of them if they do.
3: Well, Carson, let's, me let's take do it? those in reverse order and start with the size and,
2: and yep. the type. And interesting, you brought up schools and colleges. Yeah, I mean, so the size, I mean, we've got accounts from $500 in premium to $2 million. So it, it just, the more metro you get, the larger you get, the more exposure you get, like any account. So I look at population a lot of times to figure out the size of the premium. You get some a town with 1,500 people, they're probably not paying more than 30,000 or so. Uh, you start getting metro areas and putting all these other coverages with it and covering Mm -hmm. close to a billion in property values, you start getting up in the millions. And then we whole another conversation of the SIR, high deductible policies come in on that side. But I'm going to jump to the first question real quick, because that's kind of my life every day. You know, I'd say 85% of our agents are the have hey, got an insurance agency in town, my brother's on the council or my best friend's the mayor. I've got the connections, but I don't know how to write a city or county. And they call us and say, I want y'all to handle it. I'm going to forge you all the stuff I got from the city. And then me and Bob and our team go to work. We go out to all the different markets in the public sector, got an application that we complete that all the carriers accept. Uh we we spreadsheet all types of losses and budgets mm-hmm. and schedules. So that that agent just sends an email and maintains that relationship. And then we prep him, we do a Zoom call with them, give him a good premium summary, because you got to present a one-page, here's what you got, here's what I'm proposing. You can't hand counsel a 60-page quote. It, it's not going to work. So we get that local agent, that small-town agent ready, and they those guys write the business. I mean, they've got the small-town politics. I've got an agent in South Georgia that I called probably eight years ago said hey man i i'm just throwing this out there i don't know if you have any connections over here but we called the county they'd like to get a quote and he said well i know just about everybody on the board and i said all right david today we write four cities a school and two counties with that agency that told me in the beginning that uh, we don't even know if they buy insurance mm-hmm. he said, just trust me brother you go get the stuff we'll make it happen and he and i love those guys down there but uh the other, I'd say 15% of agencies are your larger brokers, your Marshes and McGriffs and people like that, that write a good bit of public entity. But to them, hey, let's send it Seville, to Seville and let them deal with it because they're the experts in this. Because what you don't want, whether you're a small agent or a big agent, is to be standing before council with your city manager next to you explaining why there's no sewer backup coverage and a house down the road's flooded. You know, and that's kind of where they rely on us to pick through the coverages and make sure everything's properly covered. Uh, We're not missing any aspects. You got anything, Bob? Yeah, I think uh, the more educated an agent is,
3: even in the public sector, the better partner they are for us uh, because they realize our value. And sometimes if you don't understand all the exposures associated with the risk or uh, how much work is involved in, making it happen. And really the high probability, it may not happen. They realize there's some value to that. So I would say 50% of our agents use the same carriers and have contracts with the same carriers that we use. And they choose to work with us, which means, you know, sometimes they'll make the same commission, but sometimes they might make a little bit less. And uh, in those cases, usually we'll, we'll pay an agent 10 points, 10% or Or something in that range but when we find that combination and they have they're politically connected and virtually all the agents we work with when pulling something out of a pool have to be politically connected and we walk through the process with them we can tell them how many days notice they have to give to the pool which you know in Georgia it's 90 days so if we get a call right now uh, for the the municipal pool, which expires May 1st, we tell the agent, well, you've already missed your 90 days. You know, so we try to lead them through so that they don't get all the way to the end and find out there's a roadblock that they'll never overcome.
4: Hmm. So, yeah. aside, you know, we talked about the, the technology, how that's changed, obviously, since you started. You've been doing it for a while. What, aside from that, what's been the biggest change in your industry that you've seen?
3: Well, you know, the fax
2: machines and internet were nice. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. Aside from the tech, though. Is, is there uh, been- I'd
2: say cyber is making a pretty big impact yeah. on it. I mean, I, yeah. I was at AIG when they rolled that out. And Bob and I used to quote cities cyber coverage with a name and an address.
3: yeah, And
2: maybe some revenues if we had them from the budget on the website. And these days, we're on the phone with IT directors going through. I mean, I, I that's how this whole podcast got started. I had a call with a group that David recommended to kind of access Mm -hmm. these cities, internal platforms and see, Hey, can we hack into these? And what's their cyber risk? Because I mean, these cities are vulnerable. We see cyber claim all the time. I believe that for sure.
1: Well, I mean, look at what both Atlanta and new Orleans had major, major cyber attacks. Yeah. I mean, you can't even get your head around some, I mean, and the other thing is I just in the middle market, it's easy to quantify exposure like i don't even know how to get my head around quantifying exposure on something like a public entity you know i think there's just so many moving pieces and parts i i think that i would be intrigued by the challenge of, of learning it and writing it but i just man talk about really having to have a good skill set which you know truthfully that's one of the main reasons i wanted y'all to come on the podcast is because You're an invaluable resource. The problem that agents have is they're cheap and they're greedy, and they don't understand that sometimes you have to pay to get somebody else's experience. Right? That's that's exactly. I would pay. I would gladly take a thirty-three percent commission reduction from fifteen points to ten points any day of the week if I know that the people that I'm working with are subject matter experts. But I could say that, and there's still agents out there. that are going to push and shove and argue. And here's where I win the argument, people. It ain't your loss ratio that's getting hit when there's losses. These losses are not affecting your contingencies. So while you may be giving up 33% by taking a five-point hit on your commission, you're not adding what could be a shock loss, to your book of business based on what's happening in public entity and you're preserving your profit sharing or at least insulating your profit sharing from that exposure. And that to me is worth its weight in gold. I do the same thing even with service contractors. If I've got a service contractor that I'm going to bring in and their auto's running a little hot, I'm not going to go to auto owners and ask them to let us you know, record the auto with them. It's just not how it's going to work. And so we end up placing it with somebody like John Mason at Shenango Brokers, who's got a variety of admitted markets. And I'll let Mason take the hit on his loss ratio if it needs to happen for the first year. And if we can get our risk management processes and procedures in place, then we'll talk about moving it over to, to Florida Risk Direct. But we can't you know, I'm not willing to take the risk on on the the profit sharing bonuses that we get if it's something that I don't truly understand or feel like I can really do a good job of controlling the the exposures.
3: Well, you know, you you make a good point and especially where you started with the, uh, how much is involved in writing a city or a county or a public school. You know, you you go into a a normal uh, private sector account and they have one thing you have to learn, and then you write that one thing under the general liability and their auto and their property sort of look like all the others. But in the public sector, you have a police department, a fire department, a, you might have streets
2: uh, and roads, streets,
3: roads works. but all your utilities, electric, natural gas, water, sewer, and then you get into the cyber world and uh, it's endless. And especially in the public sector, the I would say they're probably more vulnerable than a private sector customer. And that is one of the main targets of the bad guys. So we find ourselves, like Carson said, uh, probably once a week, we're on the phone with an IT director and uh, we don't know how to fix the problem, but we know how where the problems might be that would prevent a carrier from writing the exposure. A lot of times they don't want to buy cyber liability for one reason or another, but we, or they can't get it. They had a bad claim and they can't get it at a reasonable price. Uh, And so, you know, we just move into our risk management stool and help them identify the risk and prevent that risk, figure out how much they're going to absorb and then how much they can lay off into the insurance side.
1: So I'm a new agent. My uncle just got put on the county commission or whatever and I decided, you know what, this is actually pretty cool. I think I'd I think I'd like to start going down this road. What are a few pieces of advice that you give to agents who are trying to cut their teeth in public entity?
2: I bet I get a phone call like that once a day. Uh, <laughs> I mean we were on the phone with some guys in Tennessee in the parking lot right before this started trying to coach them through a broker bid and you know, we, this was their first chance at doing one of those. Uh, and we can get into that later. But the guy that, hey, I just got a relationship on the city council or city manager, whatever it may be, they call us up and I try to give them any kind of x states carriers, anything I can tell them from our system. Because we do a lot of research on all this. We've got a big database of x dates and carriers and, and we just save everything that comes in so that when we have those phone calls, we got the data to share with those agents. But then I tell them, hey, Get in the truck and go down there. Here's what you need to know. It comes up July 1st. It's with this carrier. Let's, let's say it's with a pool. We're still 90 days out. Go in there, introduce yourself because you got to have that first meeting. You can't just show up and write their insurance. And that's any insurance. But from there, hey, let's let's figure out when they're going to start looking at the renewal. Let's let's see what council meeting they're going to vote on this. Uh, can we get a copy of the loss runs? And we can tell the agents to get the applications that they're with, they're using with the current insurance carrier. We don't need them to come hand 40-page public sector an application to them. And so that agent goes and we call it the shoebox full of information. Just get as much as you can there, send it to me and Bob. And from there we'll go get those quotes and get you prepped and ready to present to council. Build and the it, application. Yeah, build the apps, send it to the carriers, have the carrier calls. But Bob and I have presented to hundreds of council or even sat behind the agent at the council meeting. And if he needs us, we stand up and talk. Otherwise, we just stay seated. Every now and then they'll throw us a lifeline. But, uh, you know, and we talk with cities on Zoom calls with our agents. But we want that agent, that local agent, is going to be the face of this whole deal. We're in the background. I don't care if they don't even know who Seville is at the city. I want the agent being the rock star. And we're Mm -hmm. in the background doing all the work. A lot of
3: meetings I go to, I don't even take cards because when I give them cards, they call me.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So I guess my question is, I'm thinking from our perspective, like in the middle market, we're selling on value, but I could see it being very price-driven in the public sector. Is that the case? Or is it totally up in the air? Like, what's that look like?
2: I mean, that budget's important, like we said earlier. So uh, a lot of times when we quote against a pool or association or a league, they call it something different in a lot of different states, but we can come in pretty hot under these pools um especially if it hadn't been bid in 20 or 30 years and I have a local guy that got his foot in the door and got us the information and it's very price driven then yeah uh, but if you're in a if you're in a bid
3: situation especially if it's a broker bid and what we mean by broker bid is they've it's a request for qualifications and uh, I'll call it an RFQ as opposed to an RFP which would be a request for proposals which is what you would think about as a as, as providing a proposal to an insured RFQ, which was what we were helping these folks with today. Uh, the, it's a beauty contest with the brokers. So we'll step in with uh, the with retail broker and uh, use our resources and their knowledge. And I spent four hours working on a, a broker bid for one of our brokers in North Carolina yesterday. While I watch the golf tournament, (laughs) we got it done and we have another, we have a conference call with them in two hours to review that and fill in the blanks and fill in a few things. But we tell brokers that if, if, uh, you know, broker bids can be wonderful things. If you have the resources and the, the information to impress the city or the county enough to select you, but that's a, that's probably a 40 hour venture to put that broker bid together between uh, us and the broker it's it's really an involved process. And uh, you really have to know going in, you have to need somebody like us to be able to tell you if you have a prayer of even winning that broker bid.
1: So one of the things we, we go after is troubled workers comp accounts, right? My theory in life is that if your mod is one or higher, you should be my client so I can help you get down to your minimum mod. And we have a lot of tools and resources mm-hmm. that help us do that whether it be you know using mod advisor to to audit the mod or using a company like yellowbird who's outsourced risk management to go and do baseline risk assessments or ergonomic studies or whatever else you know what are the value adds as a as an agent that I would need to be thinking about having in my arsenal if I'm going to go down this road because it can't be you know, I've seen, I mean, I like I said, I don't go after this kind of business, but I've seen a, a lot of a lot of different program structures and things, and I always point them to y'all. But I'm just interested, what should I be looking at from a, if I was going to build out a client experience platform for public entity?
2: Where would you start, Carson? Most of our local agents, their biggest value added is that they're local. They know everybody in town they can relate to the other employees because they probably went to high school with them. You know, I can't replicate that. And I can't be in Nebraska tomorrow to meet with the city. And so these local agents that know everybody, you just can't beat it. I mean, and that's why we use them. Me and Bob write two accounts direct out of 350 cities and counties. So we, you know, we've had the opportunity to quote other ones direct, but out of respect for our agents, we said, you know what, we're going to use that local agent Mm -hmm. on every one of them. Uh, whether he's a super expert in public sector or has no idea and needs us to coach him through it. Yeah, so, you, you know, uh, David,
3: if you want to write that school board, you talked about, I think we can help you do it.
1: Um, <laughs> I don't know. They'd give me a meeting to be honest. with you, <laughs> <at this point. laughs> I got a fair share of their rear end when I, when I was in front of them the last time.
3: Well, we can appreciate that too, but we can even walk in in an adversarial situation and help you be successful through if they have, claims, poor claims, you know, you're singing our song because we step into risk and we fix them. And a lot of agents will call us when they have, it's their renewal and they've had bad claims. You know, They say, what do we do? We get that call and we lay out the uh, sort of the landscape of what carriers would be available and what carriers would not be available. And usually within 24 hours, we can tell you where that, coverage will be placed by the insured three months later, hmm. just based on the facts and our knowledge of the marketplace. And Kyle, we, we can save you you know, days, if not weeks of time
4: going down a rabbit hole. I believe uh, it. So you've mentioned pools and or leagues several times. Can you explain to the listeners what that means?
2: Yeah. So the best way to think about this is like MetaShare, but for cities. So it's a shared risk retention group. And so Georgia has the GMA for cities and ACCG for the counties. And we say, keep saying Georgia because we're in Georgia and we know this state the best. But you run into – every state has different pools. Tennessee Municipal League. Uh, Texas has a ton of different pools, whereas Georgia's specific has to have one pool for the cities, one for the counties, one for the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't work with agents typically. Some states they might you – know, Tennessee Public Entity Partners is a pool – and they will work with the local agent. I don't think they pay them very well, but they will work through a local agent. And then we've mm-hmm. seen uh, recently, Missouri. Missouri will do it too. We've seen recently a lot of pools going around that local agent and cutting them out. And that's been a pretty hot topic because agents calling us saying, hey, I used to write this for 20 years. And now the pool's gone direct to the county. Mm. Yeah,
3: pools are, like, uh, are interesting because they... Wouldn't it be great if, uh, David, if in all your business, you could require them to uh, any other agent to notify you 90 days if they're going to have somebody else working on it. <laughs> I mean, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way the pools work. And, you know, they've got also, wouldn't it be awesome if your carriers, if they had upside down on, on uh, all their risk and their uh, losses exceeded their premiums and, their surplus was dropping that you could just go back to all your insureds and say, you know, I'm going to collect uh, another 20% this year because we need to bolster our surplus this year. Well, the pools have that ability to do that. And that's not advertised when uh, they go in and make that presentation because usually people don't understand it. They're that was
1: not- actually what one of my questions was going to be when you I think I even heard you say like risk retention group. In my experience, you know, when you start putting RRGs together, they're accessible. There's all kinds Mm -hmm. of hidden things that could happen on the back end. And I mean, it even happens in the workers' comp world. There's still several carriers, and I'm using air quotes when I say it, in the state of Florida, that you have to have your client sign off on a sheet that they understand they're going into a self-insurance fund as opposed to a regular carrier and you know now you have to exp- like i sell against that all day long because you don't have to deal with that in in the regular business world there's all unless you're a problem child or a really really good performer and they're trying to buy your business you just typically just go find another carrier that's a rated and you don't have to worry about it but you know i don't think agents often think about the fact number 1 your ENO likely doesn't even cover you placing business with a wrench, risk retention group. You better ask and make sure that you have coverage for it. Cause I can tell you right. that when I buy mine through the state of Florida, everything has to be, I think, B plus rated or higher. Um, you Maybe know, or if, I, if it's on the demo tech side, it has to be, you know, A, a or A minus rated or higher. But, you know, it's just like, you know, having a, writing a, a, like a condo policy or whatever else, you have a a catastrophe come in and they have to replace common ground and all of that. You're going to get assessed for that. Right. right. It's no different in the four. I would imagine it's no different in the performance of these funds.
3: That's true. Uh, uh, And and I don't want to mislead folks to think that, that uh, every uh, municipal fund or municipal pool or whatever it is, is not good. Some of them are very good and have strong surplus, but others, you know, the school pool in uh, Kentucky went under, uh, it was maybe two years ago, Mm -hmm. and then there's there's others and some in New Jersey and some around the country, you know, they're few and far between, but it happens. So that risk is always there or they wouldn't have these requirements that they have to sign up for, you know, and part of the reason they have a 90-day notice requirement, that's not set by the pool, that's set by the state of Georgia. So you can't criticize the pool for having that requirement. So why would the state set
1: it at 90 days?
3: To protect the pool. If they're going to approve a pool, you know, they only have a certain amount of regulation over the pools. They look at their financials and uh, and there is some regulation, but rates and forms, it depends on the state as, as to the degree that they, they review them, more like a surplus lines carrier. So, you know, the pool's, are a big part of the public sector. They probably write 50% of the business in the public sector.
1: Why would I want to go into a pool as opposed to working like with a firm like yours?
2: If you're a city?
1: Yeah, in general. like The people that are in there, if it's somebody that, let's just say, they have a choice. They can go one way or the other. why, Why would they pick a pool over? I mean, I don't know why I would go into something where... I could be assessed at some level if it doesn't perform well or or any number of other things. I would also think that if I'm an extremely clean risk, I don't want to go in and subsidize people who are performing worse than what I am. If I can be getting benefit, but through pricing in the open market, like I just, I don't understand. Like, is it again, in our world, we think PEO, right? If you think of like a, an employee, a, a Professional employer organization. Why would people go there? Well, they want to pool risk. They might be able to get a little discount on their comp. They may be able to get their medical a little bit cheaper or whatever else. But there's also a lot of disadvantages that could come with going into a PEO. Like most, if not all, EPLI policies for PEOs don't have a third party endorsement. And that's kind of a big exposure for most companies. They're only going to protect the actual things that happen inside the member company. And so, I feel like, you know, if you really, really know what's going going on with the pools, it's kind of like only the business that really should have to go to the pool is what ends up in the pool as opposed to, you know, the really clean business. So I just, I don't know if there's an attraction that has them go there because it's based off of price or if it's necessity that drives them in that direction. Cause I just, I don't know that I would ever want to be in that situation.
3: Well, you you know, the pools were created out of necessity in the mid 80s. It was a very hard market. Carriers were not familiar with the public sector and there was only one or two carriers that were offering coverage. So that's where the pools came from to start with. A lot of times you got to understand you understand the framework of assessments and and how a how that would impact the city or your firm but these are laymen that sit on the city councils and they don't always understand all of this. All they understand is they may have 300 members and those 300 members can't all be wrong. So the, you call it a pool mentality, but they're going to follow that herd. And sure. uh, if, if their neighbors are doing it, that's, that might, that might be good enough for them. But, uh, and you can't expect it. You know, I I couldn't sit on a hospital board and tell you how to run the hospital, but That's part of what they do. They have to make decisions every day about stuff they really don't know a lot about.
4: I was going to say, it sounds like an education issue, something that we talk about on here all the time.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Well, and a lot of our agents, the reason they have that business is because it's important to that local government to keep tax dollars local. And they like the fact that, hey, we're, we've paying money to people within our economy that's going to recirculate that money to their employees and to the restaurants at lunch and that's a good block to a state pool that goes straight to the government. And it essentially yeah. never comes back. What'd you say, Colin?
4: I, I said, that's, that's a, that's a good point.
2: Yeah. yeah okay. And a lot of agents push that.
4: Yeah. You
3: know, you know it, this leads us into a next, the next step of the discussion. And that is, uh, uh, if I'm an agent and I want to, uh, write these cities, let's say uh, I'm going to pick out the 20 cities, now let's use Atlanta, in metro Atlanta, and I want to determine if I should solicit those and what my probability of writing them is, and how do I assess that process? And our little nugget of uh, information here, and I know, Dave, this is near and dear to your heart in the sales process, is that the first thing you have to identify is what's your avenue to success. Is there an avenue at all? And if you can't identify an avenue when you start, you either need to call somebody, go find a friend, or or uh, move in a different direction. And, you know, the, uh, I've analyzed the reason we don't write business, or sometimes we lose a renewal. Uh, it, you'll never believe what the... Uh, The number one reason is because it's so simple. And that is we don't ask what the due date is. Mm. Uh, It can't be that hard, right? Year after year, it can't be that hard. But that's what we forget to do sometimes. And uh, a lot of times when we send it to a carrier, we want to make sure we tell them what that due date will be and that we tell them where their pricing needs to be. So if we can't identify those two things on the front end and then give a narrative to the carrier as to why they should work on this risk and not the other 40 on their desk,
2: then we shouldn't be working on this risk. And that translates to the city because they're voting at a council meeting and that's on the calendar and on the agenda. You miss that. You're not you're not right in the city. Mm -hmm. So you better know when the council's voting on this. And and it's not always going before council. Some of your smaller towns and cities might not take it to council, but Mm -hmm. some point they've got to get this in their budget and the city manager's got to make a decision. So you better have your quotes ready and better have a game plan or else you'll miss the boat.
1: Well, here's the last thing I'm going to ask because we're getting close to an hour. I want to be respectful of your time. You know, I'm an agent out there. I think that I have a pretty good relationship with a couple of people that are, that are in my local town. What's, what's the best way for them to engage you?
2: Me and Bob answer our cell phones seven days a week. People call us crazy for giving that number out, but you know, we answer phone calls, emails. Unless it's our anniversary. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Our wives aren't too wild about us on the phone all the time, but I'd say just call us. Call my cell phone. We'll we'll sit there and talk. I mean, I'll probably have that conversation with an agent this afternoon. Okay. Tell me who your relationships are. Tell me what you know about the city. Okay. Here's what we know. Let's get a game plan. And then let's touch base after you meet with them. Yeah. We try to, we try to get all our emails done by the end of the
1: day, which means you might get an email at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I know, and if you're like me, I was telling somebody earlier. I'm usually up most nights between one and three or one and four in the middle of the night because I can't sleep. So I'm usually replying to emails and stuff then. So if you've sent me a message and haven't gotten an answer by the time you go to bed, probably just need to shut your ringer off or your your That's notifications because right. there's a That's high right. likelihood it's coming to you in the middle of the night at that point.
3: To get back to your question, I would encourage agents to just call us and uh, not to write a piece of business, but to just ask a question. And we can answer, I could answer most questions. I've done it for 40 years. And uh, so I know policy forms, I've written some of the policy forms and, and if there's not many situations I haven't been in.
1: Well, and after doing it for 40 years, you also know who the usual suspects are too. You know, the ones you want, you know, the ones you want to avoid and you can give good counsel in, in that area as well. I'm certain So people, this has been Carson and Bob with Seville Public Entity. If it is something you even remotely considered looking into or writing or feel like you have relationships with, or if you're one of those agents out there that's dealing with your direct underwriter, trying to figure out how to cobble something together and make it work, stop doing that. Pick up the phone. These guys will answer your call reach out to them. I promise you they can help you. They may not be able to write it, but just giving you the information and the education that you need is going to make your life so much easier. So I encourage you to do that. Guys, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. I I apologize for the hiccup last week. We did end up having a very fruitful meeting for my, my youngest son's IEP. Those are always... Such a pleasure to go through. And, um, you know, my wife, thank God I'm married to the right woman because she works with special needs children for her, for her occupation. So she understands that arena very, very well and knows how to navigate it. So most of the time, I go along for the ride just to be present and listen and learn from her and she drives the bus. So I appreciate the grace you extended in coming back on. This episode has been fantastic. I learned a ton. I know our listeners have learned a ton and I hope that translates, sorry to Mrs. and Mrs. Seville, but I hope it translates to more cell phone calls for you. So, okay. <laughs> And the last be-
2: point I want to make actually real quick, you know, we mentioned earlier 7-1 is a big date for these cities and counties. If you're an agent, and you're trying to go after one of these. the The time is now to go meet with them. Uh, because- yeah, absolutely. And so
1: that everybody knows, listening, you know, just to sort of put a timestamp on this, we're recording on two twenty this podcast is going to drop next Wednesday, March 1st. So our inventory, when we moved over to block recording on Mondays, we depleted the inventory a little bit. So we're building back up to a little longer turnaround. So, you know, people are going to be hearing this message at exactly the right time to go out there and start making some waves. So good point, Carson. Thanks for bringing that up. Everybody else. We'll catch you the next episode. See ya.